In today's hyper-competitive world, how do we make sure us physicians are raising kids that have a healthy dose of drive, grit, and determination, and not a pathologic dose? Because after all, the dose makes the poison. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. We talk a lot about side gigs on this show. So if your side gig or even your main gig is a medical technology product that you want to pitch, or you're even in the early stages of product development, you could benefit from consulting with Charm Economics. They use government data, peer-reviewed journals, and trade literature to support and enhance your business model at all stages. Whether an early stage pitch deck creation, return on investment modeling, or peer-reviewed article production, they can help. See how Charm Economics can transform your business development today, so you can focus on building your product, growing your network, and implementing your vision. Check them out at charmeconomics.com. Dr. Renisa Gaskins and Dr. Christine McAuliffe, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. To introduce the audience to you, Dr. Gaskins is a clinical psychologist, having completed her PhD and Master's of Science in Public Health at University of Alabama, Birmingham, and then both her pre-doctoral internship and postdoctoral fellowships, both at Brown. And she loved Rhode Island so much. She stayed, and so now she's the founder and owner of Plum Psychology, where she sees both children and families. This is actually her second time on the podcast. The first time we discussed improving SARS-CoV-2 vaccine uptake in minoritized communities, and that seems like a decade ago. So, And then Dr. Christine McAuliffe, also a clinical psychologist, having received her PhD from Bowling Green State. Her pre-doctoral internship at Yale, her postdoctoral fellowship at University of Rochester, and she's also in Providence, Rhode Island, and is the owner of Dr. Christine Psychology, where she also sees children and families, and they were actually both part of the same private practice before they decided to peel off and start their own practices. So, Dr. McAuliffe, thank Dr. Gaskins, thank you again for being on the podcast. So, the goal of today is to prevent me from messing up my kids, or as little as possible. Try to help them be, you know, the Ted Lasso philosophy of trying to help them be the best versions of themselves. So physicians, we're a pretty driven brunch. We can really, you know, our exams and our prerequisites select for is our ability to just grind through work. You give us work, we'll do it. And so I want to make sure my kids have a healthy dose of drive. So I definitely want to pass that on to them without overdoing it. So you know, how can I make sure I'm kind of skirting that? You bring up some interesting points mm-hmm. around drive and wanting them to have the drive and at the same time kind of wanting to pull the brakes on your own desires for that drive. And what I often talk to parents about is understanding where the drive might actually come from naturally. So as you know, kids come out with certain temperaments and certain drives already that we're really just going to be tapping into. Then as a parent, they see you. And so a lot of their drive and their drivenness is about them bouncing off of you as a model. A lot of times I'll get parents say, but I don't want them to do this and I don't want them to do that and I want them to be like this. And in actuality, there's not much you need to say. They're actually looking at you. They're looking at your life. They're looking at your history. And that's where a lot of their drive is coming from. And so what you want to do is actually look at how you narrate your drive to them, right? 
What are some things you would have done differently? What are some things you wish you had done? What are some things you're proud of? And so you're modeling for them what their drive journey would look like through how yours turned out. That's what I would say most importantly. The biggest thing is the biggest influence is you as a model. And that's what a lot of the literature suggests. Okay. So the idea is I'm modeling, but not only am I modeling, I'm kind of narrating my model. So I'm explaining mm-hmm. to them what I'm doing, why am I doing. So if I want my kids to value self-care, then I need to be ex- not only taking care of myself and however like my that aligns with my values, but I'm also telling them that I'm doing it and explaining why I'm doing it. And how you got there. So like your bumps along the way, you know, because they make their own mistakes and they kind of what you see with children of high achieving parents is they're just as critical of themselves as their parents often are critical of themselves. And so parents will say a lot of caring parents will say, well, I don't want them to feel that way. Um, But they kind of have it naturally. And so they come down a little bit harder on themselves than maybe they need to. And so what they need to hear is you made your mistakes and you were okay and you felt bad. And then this is what you did to get around it. Does that make sense? So we're narrating their experience. You're narrating yours as developmentally appropriately as possible, right? To to give them an example. Everyone wants to feel normalized, including children, right? So what I find what helps a lot of times is a lot of parents will say monkey see, monkey do, but that's not actually how it works, right? If you have an experience and the child has an experience, right, you probably share You probably had some experience that they're having right now that you also had. That if you can try as simplistically as possible to say, I hear you, I relate to you, and this is what I did to get through it. You see what I mean? Now they feel like they're sharing their experience with you, right? And that's where their drive and pull back from drive will come from, right? You're narrating it and you're modeling at the same time. Does that make sense? I'm trying to think of a situation that I could like use an example where something similar like that happened to me. I'm drawing a blank. So not everybody's path through life is a straight line, for example, or you had a test, like not every test was an A. Like on average, they probably were if you're a high achieving person, but not every single thing in your life was like an A plus success, whether it was academics, maybe they were, but maybe socially you struggled with something or athletically you struggled with something. It's impossible that every single area of your life is perfect. It's not, it's impossible unless you are one of the most gifted people on the planet, which none of us are, you know, we just aren't. (laughs) There's something we struggled with and it's okay as kids kind of grow up through their lives and they hit those speed bumps they're going to hit too, to say, it's okay to struggle. It's okay to hit things that you don't know how to do and you don't know how to get through and you don't know how to go around because that's part of growing up and it's part of figuring out how to live and be a person. And I did those things too. And I didn't always know how to do those things. And I didn't always know how to make the right decisions. And sometimes I didn't, by the way. And sometimes I had to figure it out and it took me time. I just had conversations. I like fast forwarding a little bit because I think your kids are little, right? Uh, Yeah. The oldest is seven. So yeah. I just am talking to 20 year olds where I'm telling them, listen, I was in grad school. I was pre-med or undergrad. I was pre-med and I took a psychology class and my whole life changed. Wait, you can do that? You can change your path? What? Because they're being told right now at 16, they have to decide that they're going to be accountants and they can't change their mind. 
and they listen to me and they're like, Oh my God. And I just told the one that I just, I was just telling a story before we started that I had a student, former student reach out to me for a reference letter. And she's just telling me about how hard her twenties are because they're all at different developmental levels at like 24. They're all going in different paths. I'm like, that's normal. I did that. I did that with my mm-hmm. friends. And they were like, she was like, thank you for saying that because I feel better. Right. And I'm like, yeah, just bring uh, it down. Girl, that's normal. You're fine. That's- You're going to be okay. It's all right. Like, and she's like, you can, when they admire you, and they have a connection to you that helps them. It's, I didn't say you're not going to get through it or you're not driven. In fact, I pumped her up and said, you're going to figure this out. It's okay. I'll be here if you have questions, but I did that too. My friends did that. I know a lot of physicians who are mid-career and they're like, I don't mm-hmm. want to do this anymore. I want to do something mm-hmm. completely different. To pretend that we never made any mistakes or that we didn't know how to do it or we didn't understand or we made the right decisions all the time is not helping. So you're saying it doesn't even need to come with a solution. Like, no. oh, yeah, no, I really wanted to play soccer. And I like I practiced all the time. I played with my friends, thought I was really good. And then I got to middle school and phew, I didn't make the team. And like, that's the end of the story, right? There doesn't yeah. need to yeah. be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because parents do this thing where they like, um, they then take the next step where they say, well, this is what you should do. Yeah. This is what the next step is. This is what the solution is. This is what I think you, this is what you have to do. This is what you should be. And that's when the kid goes, oh, so you just want me to be you. Okay. Not so like, let them sit with the that. Story. Yeah. Just, yes. just let them sit the with it. Story. Let them know they're not alone in it. And then just be with them. So they're not alone. And every kid is going to have a different response, right? Some kids will be happy with you just sitting there being with them. And some of them will get really anxious with not having an answer, right? And that might actually, for a lot of parents, feel familiar, right? Because then the two anxieties will start feeding off of yeah, each that's other, me. right? <laughs> I need a path. There needs to be a path forward. And if there's not a path forward, there's a lot of discomfort. Yeah. Sorry. And so, yeah. So then it's like, yeah, you can say, well, you know, in that in those moments where they're starting to feel anxious, then you're just saying, I, I can see that you're starting to feel anxious right now. Well, you know what? I'm starting to feel anxious too. I remember having that feeling when I was thinking about that decision. And you can also express as a parent, I feel a little anxious right now, too. What do you think we should do right now? Bring it back around. to It's still a we thing. We're still working this out. You know, obviously, there's going to come time where there are going to be times when you actually have to give them a solution. Right. It's not going to always be open ended, particularly when they're that little. And even as they get older. Right. And, you know, as adults, we're like, oh, I know you said this was an open ended kind of situation and we're collaborating but I kind of need you to give me a solution here right and that's okay too or saying that you can have some flexibility with this you can't just live in my basement indefinitely (laughs) you're 29 you don't need to get out now but there at least needs to be a plan well think about this way you're trying to help kids learn skills right yeah so it's not just soccer it's not just writing it's not math it's problem solving it's distress tolerance it's mood regulation it's like basic emotional skills that like sometimes we don't spend enough time teaching or learning about or stress anymore in in schools those have definitely dropped off in terms of like things we stress a lot of times now depending on the school level in preschool and kindergarten yeah right you know depending on the schools a lot of that has kind of been removed because of need for our time for other things so those are just as valuable as like i'm going to sign you up for six soccer leagues you know i'm teaching you how to sit with the distress of anxiety yeah it is scary when you don't necessarily know exactly what you're going to do but i'm going to sit here with you 
We're going to figure it out. And by the way, there's not necessarily a right choice all the time. Sometimes it's just the choice that's best for you. A lot of gray. That's what I say to my patients all the time when we're making medical decisions. Like sometimes there's a yes or no answer. And a lot of times if it depends which doctor you saw. I know that like this is what I'm recommending, but I I also recognize that if you saw someone in the room next door, they might recommend something different. So you give them like just letting them know that this is that there are multiple right answers. Mm -hmm. Yes. And how do you figure that out? How do you figure out which one is the one that you think is best? Like, how would you find that information? In the moment, right? Right. So a lot of times I try to stress to people, kids, adults, is that if you can stop looking so far into the future and looking so far into the past and kind of stay right here and understand that this decision, a lot of decision making doesn't mean it's a forever decision, right? It's a decision that you made right now, given the information that you have. And if you get more information, you could probably make another decision. That's what we want to stress. Even with kids. Yeah. There's very few things that are permanent. Like, there's a few things that are, but a lot of things can be undone, can be redone, can be gone around. Like, teaching them that now is a good thing. Like, we... I'm so glad you just said that because I was going to say something earlier. There's this drive for these kids to have like these specialized skills and specialized paths so early and to put them on there and then they can't veer off and they can't change their mind and they need to have these, you know, they need to be a superstar cello at age seven. Does the kid even like cello, first of all? And secondly, not every kid is going to have some superstar skill and that's okay this drive to create this and to create this pathway that's going to be permanent through their whole childhood isn't realistic. First of all, that's not every kid. And then that creates pressure on the kid that's sitting there. I've had kids in my office and they'd be like, I'm 13. Like, I don't care about anything my parents just said. (laughs) Like, I don't care. I don't care about the violin. I don't care about the music. I don't care about the sports. I'm sorry. I don't care about anything. Not a single thing. I just want to talk to my friends. <laughs> like, that's all I want. I'm 13. <laughs> like, ah! <laughs> like, leave me alone. <laughs> like, you know, and there's value in that. Yeah. No, the way when I hear that, what I hear is like social connection. Like, the, you know, the, yes. the, you know, I had someone on the show a little while ago who, who works with hospice patients. He's like a financial guru. He's a physician. He's a financial guru. And he works with hospice patients. So, we, you know, we kind of juxtapose the, you know, how you spend your money and how you live your life. And like the mo- two most important things to people at the end of life were people and experiences. And so what you just mm-hmm. told me was like this 13-year-old really values people. And that is, you know, I think that's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. That, that being said, I'm not their parent who like... You know, this kid is enrolled in no clubs, has no after school activity, or all they're doing is hanging out. <laughs> so it's easy for me to sit on the sidelines and say. <laughs> I do think there's limits to that. Like you're yeah. saying, like drive. I think I totally agree with Renee. So, like, it's modeling that kind of stuff. I think for a kid that's still trying to find their way, it is okay also to set some parenting expectations, though, too. Yeah, you got to pick something. Yeah. You got to do something. something. It's what you want, but yes. Yeah. That I've seen a drop off in, and I don't agree with that. Like, there's been a dis- like a very distinct like lately. I don't want to tell my kid what to do at all, and it's like that's what parenting is: is that you have to set some boundaries and some expectations here. Like, they're not like free roaming. <laughs> like, <laughs> give a little bit of a push yeah. here and there. 
Again, they pick it. That's fine. You want to go to chess club every other month? Cool. But you got to do something. Like, yeah, Angela Duckworth, who gives the, you know, the TED talk on grit. I remember hearing her say that, like, her kids get to pick, like, an activity for the year. They pick it and they've got to stick with it the whole year. Like, once they're in it, they're in it. And I think that's a great way to go about it. Like, and if they like the same thing, then they do it every year. They get better at it. You know what? We're not, you know, Mike, my seven year, like he was supposed to have a play date with a couple of his friends and they couldn't come because they all had baseball games. I was like, how is he the only kid not on the baseball team? What are we doing? We're not in baseball. Everyone else is in baseball. We got to get him. And then, you know, take a step back and they're like, first of all, I don't want to sit at a two hour baseball game of seven year olds. It's boring enough watching major league baseball let alone and like he hasn't expressed any interest in doing it and like what do they spend most of their time sitting around so like yeah. you know for to be the, kids on traveling teams and two traveling teams and you know getting that specialized that early i don't know it just doesn't it just you know i think we have to get back to the why of why what are we doing it for is it you know for what dr mcauliffe was talking about earlier is like conflict resolution and social skills and social and learning how to lose and learning how to sit with this the discomfort of like striking out again and again. Like there's, a, I think there's important stuff to be learned in that. But as long as we're really remembering why we're doing it. You bring up a good point uh, around the peers, right? Because when you talk about, for example, your seven-year-old's friends are all playing baseball right now. What you're dealing with is this unspoken peer pressure, right? That starts at the parenting circle, too. Uh, so the parents feel pressure. Yes. Uh-huh. He didn't feel pressure to play baseball. I felt the pressure from my friends who are the parents of his friends. Exactly. And that's where it starts to get tricky, right? Where you're trying to manage your own pressure, people-pleasing trying to get around that, but at the same time, trying to maintain your relationships in the community too, right? Because people get a little finicky. Renisa, did you just go through the SAT? I don't know how many of you, Renisa tends to see a little bit more of the younger ones than I do, which I love. She's fantastic with them. I, every time I get a phone call, I'm like, I know you should call. Um, um, I have a bunch of, and she does too, but I tend to see adolescents and young adults more than the younger ones. I do, man, I still see some middle schoolers. Actually, middle school is where I start. I always say I've been in middle school, junior high for the last, like, I'm not going to say how old I am because I, but for a long time at this point, somebody needs to let me out of middle school. Like, (laughs) I haven't left. But we just went through SATs and college admissions. And it's, that doesn't stop at seven. That goes all the way through, like, this college admissions cycle with everything blowing up what's going on with college admissions right now. I'm talking to the kids, but I'm also talking to the parents because they have this incredible, especially where Renice and I live, there's this huge, there's a huge disparity between the public schools and the private schools. And then some of the public schools that are different from some of the other public schools in terms of, what would be the word for it? Equity? We'll go with equity. And there's a lot of like very high driven, high achieving parents who have kids in some of these private schools and some of the public schools as well, which is great. No no hate, no anything towards that, but they have high expectations for how this was supposed to come out for their kids. And it didn't come out that way because of what's going on with college admissions. And it's been a big mess because it's created all kinds of tension, not only for the kids, but also for the parents 
and these expectations they had for their kids, what was going to happen to their kids and all these things they poured money into and all these activities and all these things that they'd given up for their kids. And all of a sudden the end result did not come. That was like, and the kids are crashing. The parents are crashing. It's like, it's and the, the grief. And, yeah, and that it's process. grief. It's grief, right? There's grief in that, in the investment, right? I feel like that's going to mess the kids up, right? Like, like you know, the, you know, all this, like, as if the valedictorian of my medical school, of my class, went to for his first two years community college, and then he transferred to a four-year college. He got his degree, got into medical school, and killed it. So, like. You know, where, whereas I went to an Ivy League school for undergrad and ended up getting into medical school off the wait list and was not valid, right? And so to think like this, and that's what was the message that I always got was that like where you went to college dictates everything for the rest of your life. And it's just, yeah, we put so much pressure on this like one singular achievement and, you know, clearly to the detriment of their psychosocial development. And it's even younger than that now. I don't think Renee, we haven't talked about this, but like, yeah, that's one of the big milestones, but it's, it goes even further back. It's like there's, and where we are, they're competing to get into these, to these private high schools. Oh yeah. And in Manhattan, it starts with like first grade, like getting into private elementary school. It's insane. Or preschool. It's insane. Yeah, yeah. Every step of the way, it's like one more thing that like, I didn't, this means something about me. This means something about me. I'm like, it means you're a kid. Like, that's all it means. This means nothing. Like, and then I tell them, I have a story for that too. Like I'm from rural Northern New York. I'm from a very impoverished area. Nobody got into Ivy League schools. My SAT, not trying to brag, my SAT score was the highest in the school. It was up through the roof. I didn't get in like because we couldn't get, you. nobody got in. They didn't know how to make that happen. It's not just about who you are and what you achieve. It's about how they get people into those places. I talk about my kids now. I'm like, do you know what the percentage of Harvard's incoming class is legacies, athletes, and people who donate? Like, and what leaves that leaves left over for the pool? Like, it's not you. It's not what your value is. Systemic. Like, and I tell them the story about me. I'm like, there was everything you, checklist that you guys had that now I had then. And I ended up at a school that I was not expecting to go to, but I had a huge scholarship for that I could afford. And given the chance to transfer, I ended up not transferring. And then at that point, I got into Cornell. I got into Georgetown. I got into Hopkins. I didn't go because I made friends and I couldn't afford them. <laughs> so like, it doesn't matter. What matters is what you end up doing, that you find your path and you find out what you want to do. But we put these incredible pressure, like, like hurdles in front of kids constantly that like they are not, they aren't even going to have the tools to jump over right now because systemically, <laughs> Ernie Sire was like, <laughs> like systemically they can't. Like there's reasons that the block is in front of them anyway. You can't get over it. You can't get over under it. You can't go around it. It's there, and they don't. They're having a hard time comprehending that because we've told them it's about them. This is about what you didn't do right. Versus there was no way for you to get this in the first place. Yeah, which is why the rates of of high achieving, you know, kids of high achieving parents. High rates of depression, anxiety, suicide, substance use disorder. It's not surprising when you're describing all this. And also that high rates of anxiety and depression and substance use, all of that 
crashing by the time they get to college, perhaps a little bit sooner, but a lot of signs of who they were and their drive very early and not necessarily being addressed, right? Because of the stigma around mental health. So I think at some point we're supposed to talk about laziness, right? And a lot of times I hear people come into my office and they'll talk about lazy. And I say quite often, I actually don't use that word. I don't agree with the word. Um, because what you're doing with lazy is you're oversimplifying and you're missing what actually is going on behind the scenes, right? There's probably a reason that you haven't been able to identify just yet why so-and-so is not doing whatever is expected of them. And we have to figure out what that reason is. And if you label them as lazy, not only are you not going to figure it out, (laughs) you're actually alienating them and you're actually making the problem worse, right? So if you can get away from, oh, they're just being lazy, no, that's probably not it. So for example, a lot of people have developmental disabilities, right? Lots of people, high achievers included. But what happens with high achievers and and even non-high achievers is, well, we're not supposed to talk about that because if you have a developmental disability, then that means you must be, quote unquote, you know, not too bright. And people say all sorts of words. Um, And the reality is people have needs that need to be addressed. And when you don't address that, you kind of push it off. It kind of builds over time. And then you get the building up of anxiety and the building up of depression and all that was kind of sitting there. Right. And then they come to our office in crisis. So like for me, like Dr. Christine was mentioning earlier, people don't believe in preschoolers having therapists. Oh, they're so young. They'll just grow out of it. And I say therapy with kids looks very different from therapy with adults. But what you're doing when you bring your young children into therapy is you're saying, number one, I agree that we can take care of ourselves and it's okay to have a problem and go see somebody who specializes in this and get help with it. And number two, number one, when they're that little, the therapy is like, oh, they had this issue. They had that issue three, four, five, six sessions later. They're fine. Okay. It's, it's not, they're not going to be in there pouring out their lives, right? <laughs> it's just much more targeting, right? Um, but what you're trying to do is set up this idea that it's okay that you have a problem and we're going to try to work through it together, right? Oh, sounds like you might be having some difficulties with attention. Now, three, every three, four, five-year-old has attention difficulties, right? <laughs> but as they get older, for example, kids with ADHD, they have attention difficulties, and you can actually see it popping out even in the three to four to five-year-olds, particularly if they're severe, but you can't really get into diagnosis until they get a little bit older, but you can start to keep your eye out for it. So if you can get them in front of somebody where they work with the small children, they can start to give them strategies and start to let them know this is what your brain does when it wants to do this. And this is how we talk about you know, when we're having difficulties with attention and let other people know this is how we want to be talked about. And start with the parents, too, because so many of them don't want to talk about this or kind of manage this or think that their kid has an issue. And so much of what we end up kind of managing, at least the way that we approach things, is their emotions, the parents' emotions and their response. It's, I can't 
tell you, like, I always want to have parents involved and families involved, but sometimes I do enjoy having adolescents because they bring themselves, like, and some of them have tried for years to explain what they're feeling and what they need, and they're not believed or they're pushed back on, and when they can bring themselves and talk, not that I would ever keep a secret from a parent or anything that would be of, you know, of something that would be dangerous or any of the things that are against kind of our ethical codes, but that kid having a space where they're listened to and believed and said, no, you're not, you're right to take this seriously. You're right to need to talk about this. You're right that something's not kind of probably going the way it should. It's something's kind of holding you back from where you could be. You're right. I see it too. They need an adult to say that to them, that they trust and they believe Versus fighting constantly with somebody who keeps telling them, no, 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 no. No, you're fine. You're fine. Right. Until you're not fine enough. Until you're not not fine. I don't know if that double negative works. And then it's time for therapy, right? And then they come to you, fix this problem. And then even then, like I see tons of kids who have really high grades. And this is a difficulty with the schools. They'll start talking and I'm like picking up on you know, some standard kind of presentations of symptoms. And I'm saying, huh, it sounds like you have some attention. They have good grades. They're fine. I'm like, yeah, well, okay. It's not just about grades. It's about how hard they have to work, how much inefficiency goes into it and how much distress is caused for them because they have to put so much work into maintaining their focus, right? And that is a process of getting the parents on board, right? It's a process of getting adults on board when they learn later in life that there's a developmental disability. But when there's parents who have this idea of, this is not my child, this, this, no, this is not what's happening here. They're fine. Because then they don't, they have to come to terms with what might have been missed with themselves. That's usually what we're dealing with, right? You had mentioned the word, lazy before. And I just want to, you know, touch on one more issue. I know it's a buzzword we don't want to use, but how I had phrased the question before, because another thing that physicians come to the table with is a lot of us are financially more well-off than our parents were. Some of us come from physician families, but many of us don't. Many of us are better or more well-off than generation before. At least me personally, my parents did well. We were a middle-class, upper-middle-class. We did well. But, you know, we still had this like hunger to achieve in order to improve our financial status. If my kids have all this stuff, like my wife's Swiss, we go skiing in the Alps. Like I grew up skiing in the Catskills, which is still, which is still amazing. Like my parents didn't grow up skiing. So I like, I did, you know, they afforded us these options, but they're growing up with like, I have a pool in my backyard. I didn't have a pool. Like we went to the freezing cold community pool. So like they have all this stuff, they have all access. So how do I make sure they still have this hunger that I had to succeed? And I think you've actually answered it already, but I still wanted to put the question out there. Well, I mean, I think it depends on your definition of success. I think that's the first place I kind of want to start. Like I don't, I think for, I don't know, I think this is kind of a challenging question because I feel like there's some stuff in here that's a little bit tied into social economic status that gets a little tricky. Yeah, that's a little tough. And I think it's a genuine question and I, I think it's coming from a genuine place, but I think it's one of those things that's like, 
No, not at all. It sounds like a genuine concern. It's just that you didn't want them to have to hunger for it. You know what I mean? Like that's part of what we do as parents is we move forward with the desire that our kids don't have to experience some of the things we've experienced if they were tough and challenging and not pleasant. Not meaning that our kids shouldn't be challenged or develop resiliency or go through their own paths that are challenging, but we don't want them to experience like some of the things like if you are raising yourself in social economic status, you're doing that with the hopes that not only you will be there, but the next generation will follow you. Like that's the whole concept of what we're doing here. You know what I mean? Like if we're going to yeah. go with the system that we're going with, you know, you're saying your wife is Swiss, she knows a whole other system, but like, you know, like, so if we're going with kind of the United States definition of SES, like that's the whole point. So that part is already kind of what you did. So you don't really want them. I mean, I guess from a certain perspective, I always think about like, that's not what you want them to experience. What you don't want them to be is lazy. You don't want them to sit there and take all of that for granted and just expect it to be given to them again. And I think that's more of like what the question is. Yeah. And I think that's again, coming back to how you parent. One of my very close friends, an undergrad, actually, his family was like very well off. And I say this because they went to school with very many very well-off kids. And his family was like a conglomerate. He was going to end up running a company. But his family did like cleaning supplies. And he would work cleaning office buildings every summer, him and his brother. And they're VPs of the company now. Like I know that, you know, we follow them, you know, social media, that kind of stuff. And I always thought that was amazing. Like that their parents were like, no, you need to understand what our workers do. If you're going to lead them someday, you're going to own this company someday. You're going to understand what our people do and how hard their jobs are. And you're going to do that. And it was like, that's a perfect example of like, even at a certain SES, you want to build respect for the people that are working for you to help you afford what your lifestyle is and understand that it's not a given and it's not just given to you. Someone is helping you have it. And I think that's the kind of stuff that to be thought about when you've reached a certain level is how am I building those values and ethical approach if you want to take it there into parenting versus like well just don't sit on your ass if you're lazy you know i think i in thinking about hunger and kind of piggybacking off of what christine said you're not looking for them to be hungry right it's a different way they approach things yeah wanting something passionate right you want them to be passionate about what it is they do if they can right I mean, because that's a whole different kind of understanding. Some people can't get passionate about many things, and that's just who they are, right? And that's why we want to understand you understand who this little person is as best you can, right? And you want them to know that I'm actually trying to understand you as much as you're trying to understand me so that I know how to get you to where it is you're trying to go. And we don't know where that is yet, but you get to decide as best you can. And I'm going to give you these tools. Right. And so one of those tools is here are our values. Right? Here are our house rules. And here's why we do the things that we do. Right. You come up with your understanding, your ethical understanding of things, and you convey those to your children through your own behavior. Right. And also through how you talk to them. Right. And like we talked about earlier, how you narrate your personal experiences from coming up just like they did and moving forward. Here's what I learned, right? 
Now, you're not obviously going to be able to tell them everything. And you're not some things you're just not going to want to share entirely. Right. But your goal is to try to be as transparent with them as possible, as developmentally appropriately as possible. And that gets tricky. But that's where you if it feels a little too tricky, you just reach out for help for that. Right. To somebody who knows how to help you talk to your child around these types of issues. Great material. A lot for us to think about, a lot for us to work on. I love it. I love it. The other thing I don't mind. I'm sorry. Like the other thing is, too, is like thinking about what is driven because like is driven what we've all done or is driven like working in a nonprofit all the time and working about all. You know what I mean? Like, but you're not making any money, but you're making you you're helping people. Like that's the, I think that's kind of what you've been kind of talking about is like drive for our kids is not the drive for us. Like our drive with these careers. And I always say to people, like, if you're not passionate about these kind of careers, pursuing them is not a good idea. No matter how much prestige or money or whatever you think this is going to be, it's not a good plan. Like this is going to take a giant chunk out of your life to even get through the part where you're through training much less to the part where you'll be a professional. So there's other ways if you just want to make money or you want to be prestigious or other things. Like there's other ways to get to that goal. So I think it's, you know, again, it's thinking about like, who is this kid that I'm raising? Like, what are they actually passionate and driven about? And what have I, because of what I've achieved, given them the space to actually be able to explore because they don't have to worry about some of the things I had to worry about. They don't. So that's great. Like, yeah, like they don't have to worry about a single parent or two, you know, any of those things. Like they're not doing that because I haven't, I've given them a platform that they don't have some of those worries. So they can put some of their effort into things that maybe don't have to be the same things that I had to put my effort into. Doesn't mean I don't, again, the expectations are still important. Hey, we still expect at least these. We still, you know, if you're not getting them, we need to find out why. And that might be low. <laughs> but, you know, depending on the kid, if you have a kid that's growing up with ADHD, that might be what they can give you because that's what they're doing with what their brain's doing or a learning disability. You know, every kid is going to be based on who they are as a little person. So I think that's the bigger point is what is drive going to mean for each little kid? Yeah, we put them in a position where they don't, you know, it's not like they lift, the, lift themselves out of poverty. They're in a position, they have the leverage to define what success means to them. And we want them to be driven about whatever that particular thing is. And it might change over time. But by modeling, by narrating, we're showing them and teaching them our values and giving them the tools so that they can find their purpose and fulfill that. All right. Great way to end. So Dr. Gaskins, Dr. McAuliffe, where, I guess, Dr. Gaskins, let's start with you. Where can people find you online and where can people find Plum Psychology? Oh, yes. So they can find me online at Plum, as in the fruit, psychology.com, right? And it is a telehealth practice. So they will find me online (laughs) and then they will talk to me online after they find me. And Dr. McAuliffe, doctor, where can people find Dr. Christine's psychology? So I am, my website is not up yet because I continue to not spend the time to put it up because I am on psychology today and that continues to send a ton of people my way, which I very much appreciate. 
I am a hybrid. So I kind of do virtual and I do in person. I'm looking for, I'm in between spaces right now. So if anybody has an office, but, and then I also teach. So I will be hopefully at some uni- at a university this fall. So as well. Well, fantastic. Dr. Anissa Gaskins and Dr. Christine McAuliffe, thank you so much for your time and expertise. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you. This is not a doctor-patient relationship, and this is not medical advice or financial advice or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.